quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Boss Files, from living on food stamps to becoming CEO, Brian Gallagher knows the reality of struggling to get by all too well. His childhood was tough. One of six children, he and his family relied on food stamps and welfare checks. Today, he's the president and CEO of United Way Worldwide, the largest private nonprofit in the world, in charge of 1,800 United Ways across 40 countries. His candid take on if America gives enough, the budget cuts they're facing, and his one-on-one meeting with President Trump. Brian Gallagher, thank you for joining us. Good to be here, Bobby. Nice to have you on. You get to be CEO of an organization, United Way, that does so much good all over the world. It is no doubt humbling and yeah. it is a privilege. 14 years you've led United Way, the largest private nonprofit in the world. You guys have 1,800 United Ways across 40 countries. When you wake up every morning and get out of bed, what do you think? What is num- mission number one? Um, most days. <laughs> most days it's mission. It's, um, it's about impacting people's lives and what am I doing today that, um, that's, that's moving me and us in that direction because there's so many distractions, um, uh, business-like distractions. It's a big organization, you know, it's like running any business and so it's easy to get pulled away from uh, why you exist. Mm-hmm. And especially when you're in a national or the worldwide job, you're not in communities anymore. And so, um, it's a lot of times for you guys, it becomes about raising money. No doubt. I, I think about raising money a lot. <laughs> I think about, again, am I, am I good days? I think about how you connect need with resource. Yeah. So our, that's our job. 130 years old now. Yeah. Or so. Yeah. What is the need today as you see it? The need's always the same. It's, uh, it's education, income, and health. It's people need, um, people need, at the end of the day, need to be able to be independent. And that's about financial um, self-sustainability for yourself and your family. That means education and training, and that means um, you know access to health care and being healthy. Yeah. Uh, during industrialization, the environment was a different environment. Today, in a global technology-driven economy, uh, it's still education, income, and health. Those are still the basic needs in the world. It's just the environment has changed so dramatically. Take us into your world as you look at need, because need in the United States is so important, yet yeah. so much different than need in rural India. Correct. So, so the U.S. is a mature economy that has moved from, from agrarian to national industrial to now um, knowledge-based technology, where India is still an emerging economy. So they're growing their middle class and we're losing our middle class. And so they're they're, um, training folks up for entry level jobs. We're trying to figure out how do you train people up for middle skill jobs. And um, so the need's the same, you know, people need a good job. 
but the kind of jobs that are created in India are in an emerging economy are different mm -hmm. than the kind that get created in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, in a developed economy that has gone through its manufacturing cycle yeah. and now is in a different is in a knowledge base. There's a skills shortage in the U.S. There's, There's a, a huge skills gap. I mean, there's some latest numbers where like five million open for sure jobs in this country. For a sure. lot of it is about. Um, sort of what is manufacturing 2.0, smart manufacturing, That's right. technology, That's having right. the skills. That's right, right. Before we dive more into what you do every day, let's talk about you as a man, who you are, what led you here, because you are a CEO yep. with an MBA, a business leader like so many others, but you are in what you guys call the business of human development. Yep. And your wife says, I read, that this job is your calling. Yeah, yeah, I didn't realize you'd researched my wife. Um, <laughs> we do our a, you do your here, homework sir. here. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, it is. Um, I, you know, I, my undergraduate degree is in social work, and uh, I'm a son of immigrants. My dad came from Ireland with an eighth grade education. My mom from Scotland. Mm. They met in Toronto, moved to Chicago. Um, as I like to say, it was a match made in hell. Um, created kind of a turbulent um, childhood. Mm. And so I started, you know, I had mentors in my life and we had nonprofits in, in our lives and we had public assistance and food stamps in our lives uh, on and off. And I started wondering why, that what, why is this here? Why are you having, so you relied on food stamps as a kid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and public assistance, welfare. So my dad was a union plumber. So he's a, um, he'd work on industrial sites and he'd get laid off. and and drank too much and and my mom wouldn't tell him that she was going and getting food stamps and and welfare applying for welfare and uh so it created the pretty weird dynamic yeah. um and so we were product of community and services and i just so i it's a calling in that it, i was the middle of six kids and you create empathy when you're the middle of six kids and yeah. in a survival mode it's prop and then I found United Way in college. I mean, you you lived it, and you, I mean, you started your career uh, with United Way, as you said, in college, yeah. 1981. Yeah. You were an intern. Yeah. Is it true you didn't even know what United Way was when you got the internship? I didn't. I didn't. I, I was at Ball State in Muncie, Indiana. Uh, we had to do a nine-week practicum in the community. I'm flipping through the book, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't, I couldn't do direct service. I had studied that. And I like community organizing, and I like the development side of it. I was starting to take business classes, and I came across this thing called United Way. And it said, an organization that focuses on the biggest issues in a community and brings people together. I said, I want to do that. And so I went to the local United Way in Muncie, Indiana for nine weeks, and then applied for a national internship. I didn't get the job. So I was... The CEO didn't get the job. I was the first alternate. And so I went from Muncie back to my hometown in Hobart, Indiana, Gary, Indiana, and I was going to move to Indianapolis and work construction and maybe go to graduate school. Yeah. And a kid from Detroit wouldn't take the job to go to Winston-Salem as an intern. And oh, they wow. called me up and said, would you go to Winston-Salem? I wow. said, yeah. Packed and up my 73 Nova and went to Winston-Salem. <laughs> I'm picturing that, 73 Nova. <laughs> it was, life was good. Life was good. <laughs> so I read that you had three choices when you graduated from college, JCPenney, Sears, or United Way. Yep. Yep. I applied for management training programs at all three of those. Uh, didn't get the J.C. Penney job, didn't get the Sears job. Good was thing. First alternate, yeah, good thing in both cases. <laughs> was uh, uh, first alternate in United Way, and I was prepared to take any job. So, but I, I did 
read that your dad was really worried uh, when you told him that you were going to United Way, that you were going into social work, yeah. thought you'd end up in the trunk of a car? That's what he said to me. Why? He, uh, uh, my dad was, you know, it's very interesting that, you know, so I'd lived among immigrants, European immigrants for the most part, and so, but, but I, I know the mentality of, of an immigrant community, and, and one of them that isn't very attractive is once you get yours, you don't want others to take what you got. Mm. You see it in, I think you saw it in Brexit in, in the UK with the kind of the first generation of uh, Asian, Indian, and Pakistani immigrants into London and so forth. It's like a lot of anti-immigration in that community, mm. a lot of anti-immigration mm. in the Irish immigrant community. And so he looked down on a lot of folks and he saw, thought social work was working with people that he didn't think much of. And that, um, you know, for a, a guy Even with though they age, help people like your family and yeah, the predicament he, he was, your family was in. My dad was a Reagan Democrat. He was, he, was a, he was an immigrant with an eighth grade education that was enamored with the American dream but became very judgmental. Hmm. And uh, I'm not saying Reagan Democrats, but he did. And, and so when I told him I was going to study social work, and I was first to go to college, and so he was happy about that. And I said, I'm going to study social work. He said, you're going to end up in the trunk of a car. Oh. I said, we'll see. Was this in any way a sense of rebelling against him, trying to prove him wrong? No. I, I you know, one of the th you, um, again, I, I think I'm a product of being in the middle of a big family yeah. in a dysfunctional house, um, and you learn to cope. So I, I, didn't, I didn't fight him. I, there's, I, I've learned to manipulate things. I learned to manipulate him. Um, and I learned to survive him and survive the environment. So when that's, that, it's not an isolated wow. incident for him to say I something like that to me. I learned to survive him. I mean, those are yeah. tough words to yeah. stomach. Do you, what is it like now coming full circle knowing that what you do helps kids in the worst of situations? Well, that's, you know, part of the calling is so when, the last three years of his life, uh, he, he was sober and he became less able to care for himself. And he was back in, in Northwest Indiana and I had been all over the country now in different jobs and my brother was really, and my sister-in-law were really taking care of him. And I went back to visit him when he was sober and uh, he was in an apartment and as I was visiting, he had two visitors that day. Uh, one was a volunteer from Meals on Wheels, mm. and one was a visiting nurse. And I thought, this is unbelievable. Yeah. This is, uh, you know, that these are two organizations that we fund, that we partner with. They don't know this guy from Adam, and they don't know his history. They don't, yeah. They're just there. They're just because he's on the list. So you bring up Meals on Wheels, and of course that makes me think about the proposed Trump administration <laughs> budget, which would uh, bring some pretty drastic cuts to a number of these uh, you know, social services programs, including Meals on Wheels yep. and a boost to military and defense spending. You're in an interesting spot because you're a CEO of an organization that needs to raise money from folks that love that and folks that hate that, from yeah. Republicans and yeah. Democrats. Yeah. I mean, where do you fall on that? Where does United Way fall on the Trump budget as it stands? Um, you know, so the president's budget is always what a president's budget is. It's a political document until Congress gets a hold of it, and so it's in play. Um, and so we're pretty pragmatic. One of, I'll, I'll say that 
we've done a few things in the U.S. Right, in, over the last 30 years. We've carved out the economic middle, we carved out the political middle, now we're starting to carve out the cultural middle in terms of what do we actually believe together. So a budget is just a reflection of what we believe. And so, so our position is, um, look, if you're gonna, if you want to spend more money on military or uh, infrastructure, good, uh, but don't think that you can that you can replace uh, discretionary domestic spending to plug those holes. It, it doesn't. It but doesn't work. So that their way. argument is, you know, you launch an infrastructure plan, you employ all these people, and therefore those are there, there are holes that no longer need to be plugged because these people are now being employed. You say. I say infrastructure, if, if you include people as infrastructure, if you think it's just steel right. and concrete, okay, if you don't under, understand that you need to also invest in people mm -hmm. to actually do that work, um, and, and it requires a different level of skill than, than we're providing for folks, and I'm all in. And actually, there's some conversation in Washington right now with folks at OMB about um, uh, tr job training and middle skill. Yeah, are and so you forth. are you actively working with them, uh, OMB? Because you know Mulvaney over there, who's running things, says this is a compassionate budget. That's how he's answering critics. It's um, it is. You know, what's the best way to say this? I've I've worked with three administrations now in this job, Democratic and Republican. Um, every administration goes through a learning curve. Um, uh, I don't think right now you you even know whether it's a compassionate budget or not. Um, let's see what let's see what's in it. If uh, if you think you're going to pay for other priorities by cutting social service programs that actually hold communities together, and that the trickle down of uh, of money from the top or jobs from the top is going to be spread fairly and evenly across the communities across the country mm -hmm. without intervention, that's just naive. Look, I don't think it is just Republicans who hate waste. I mean, everyone hates, you know, hates government waste, right? Um, and you see firsthand what programs work yeah. in putting people back to work yeah. actually for a sustained period of time and what programs don't. What programs just throw money at the problem? What is, um, what is Brian, the lesson in all of that so, so that there can be less government waste? So I think it's the, it's the wrong metric. So when you go after government waste, you inherently are saying there's too much of it, whatever it is. What is the problem, the biggest problem with government funding is that it's dated, that it doesn't stay up to speed. So we have job training programs in the U.S. and education support programs that were built for a different economy. Yeah. And they don't work. So it's they're not, that not you don't coding. As my, as my bright, young yeah. millennial producer tells me to always <laughs> ask. Seriously, she yeah. gave me this extra yeah. question. She goes, yeah. ask yeah. him about coding. I mean. I don't know how to are, code, but my daughter is an expert <laughs> well, I don't know how to code, so I suppose I'm not very employable after this one. We'll see. But, but um, I mean, is that what you're talking about? That these That this money should be going towards coding instead of, like, you know, manufacturing line jobs, for example? They should go, the, the biggest shift that has to happen in public sector funding for job training is it has to become more job-centered. So, but that's where the jobs are. That's what I'm asking, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, That's where the good-paying jobs are. And, and in healthcare. Yep. And in, um, and in uh, you know, services to people. So as the country gets older, who's so going to care for... So you can't replace with iPads. You can't. 
So who you, who's going to take care of your grandmother home or your mom? Care. Yeah. You're right. All the job, a lot of the good job growth, good paying jobs has been yeah. in the healthcare sector. So, so my point, my point is, it's not that it's not that the intention is wrong. Right. The metric is wrong. Well, but the argument, the counter argument to that would be, you know, you've got to deal with debt and deficits. Yeah, you do. And you've got to cut some spending. No. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. And uh, do it in a balanced way. Do it. it, it the, the idea that the idea that um, creating GDP growth will, um, I had this conversation with a very big donor of ours and a great guy, uh, so I'm not going to tell you who it is, but... Um, you knew my next question. <laughs> I did. Um, and, I, and we were having this conversation, and he said, well, GDP growth is going to be up to 4% in two years. So says the president. And I said, and what about income inequality? Yeah. And he said, a rising boat rises with all, uh, all boats rise with a rising tide. I said, it, that's not true. It's not what history shown us It's at not all. true. For the last 30 years, until the last two years, yeah. um, income has not grown for the middle, for middle class in, in America. It's not, the income gap's as wide as it's been since the 1920s. So the problem is we're not training folks for the jobs that exist. So let's talk about the risk. Why should people that don't have to live that reality, have never lived the reality that you live? Frankly, yeah. me. I never lived the reality you lived as yeah. a kid. Why should they care about the growing income path? income gap aside from being compassionate and empathetic and good humans yeah. what is the social cost because i remember you know oh gosh it was four or five years ago in davos at the world economic forum yeah. speaking with economist nouriel rubini right who yeah. predicted the housing crisis yep. etc yep. saying to me what a huge risk to society to western society this growing income income gap yeah. is how yeah. do you see it i um my observation, my reading of history, and my own experience is you'll never have long-term economic success without human success. You allow this gap to grow and be maintained, you will become first economically less competitive. Mm -hmm. um, we're falling behind in terms of education, workforce readiness, uh, and will become, so you have yours right now, but sooner or later, your business won't do as well. So we'll, we'll just give it to China, for example. Just, you'll, we'll, start, we'll, start, we'll start losing to countries economically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so we are much better off by making sure that the, the economic growth is inclusive. Because then you've got what, you know, it's interesting. Before there was corporate social responsibility and, right, and all this social. Sort of on the corporate masthead and on the, exactly. on, on the website, but they didn't totally always mean it. And great business leaders knew, even before the buzzwords, that you had to have strong communities because that's where your right. customers came from. That's where your employees came so, from. So and that's the, how you compete. So who, two-part question, who's doing it well, business leaders, CEOs, and their businesses? Yeah. Um, and do you buy the argument that if you raise a minimum wage, Obama wanted 10, 10 an hour federally, um, it doesn't look like there's going to be much action right now on a yeah. federal level, yeah. but states are, a lot of them, increasing minimum wage. Do you buy that that trickles into the businesses, they spend more, and those businesses do better? So I, the first question, you know, I always, when I get asked that question, I always think of the same company and the same person, Jeff Immel to GE. Um, maybe because we came into the job at the same time he was under a lot of pressure to you know follow jack welch and do what jack mm -hmm. did and he wasn't thinking that way at all and he's trying to take a manufacturing company into this new technology world and and uh i think he lives his values and i think that company's trying to live its values mm -hmm. and 
um, they're a global citizen. We run into them all over the world, and yeah. they act the same way everywhere. So, you know, the, when I was saying carving out the glo carving out the cultural middle, um, corporate leaders are important to that because do you what do you believe? What do you value? Yeah. And are you consistent with that? That's what I see at places like GE, UPS, some others. It's funny because. You know, I think a lot of the folks at Wells Fargo and Wells has had embattled right embattled. now. Embattled, and I, I think you know, I work with so many business leaders, and I think yeah, I could think of some folks that maybe should have been in that barrel. Why John Stump? Why Wells? I mean, yeah, I'm not saying they didn't do certain things wrong, but it's like wow, that's sometimes it just happens. So, mm. in any event, that. Um, and then the second question was? Well, just the argument for an increased oh, minimum federal wage. minimum wage. Do you buy the argument that it trickles down? Um, directly into more consumer spending, which helps these businesses, which helps create jobs. I think um, in probably... Or do you price, price these employers out so they won't hire as many people? It's, it's some of both. I mean, it depends on which businesses. And um, I'll say... I'll well, say fast food is the prime example. And you got... I mean, we know that, uh, you know, there are folks who work in these jobs yeah. that are not teenagers. They're increasingly yeah. adults, yeah. and they're also getting government benefits on the side because they can't live on their salary. Oh, there's, I mean, there are people working full-time, not just in fast food, that, yeah, that, don't, have, that don't have enough money totally. to sustain themselves. Totally. And so, so it's, the reason I hesitate on it, not because I don't want to answer it, it's, 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 it's a part of, so income and having cash and having more cash is part of the, is part of it. But do you have affordable health care? Is the housing policy, you know, mixed? Mm -hmm. And is there affordable housing? Um, you know, so is is there job training and daycare that's affordable? It's not so. Anytime I any minimum wage debate feels like a silver bullet it's discussion only part to of me. It. It's only part of it. And so when you say yes, I'm for minimum wage increases, then it's like like how are you going to make childcare affordable? Exactly, is the government exactly. going to help out? So we so for instance, we're probably maybe the largest private proponent of uh, the earned income tax credit. That, but that's look, Buffett has said that Warren Buffett has said that repeatedly to me and publicly that what you need to do is is you know the earned in income tax credit needs to be more Absolutely. broad. It just seems like it's hard, so Congress isn't doing it. It shouldn't be hard. It's yeah. um, it, it's you know what it what it breaks down in is idea is ideology you know too much government government that's come on you know it it's, it if encourages you, more people to work and it put and save and and education mm -hmm. it, it's 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 a no brainer. So let's talk a little bit about your experiences in the field because now you're sitting here you're wearing the suit you're the CEO you're the top dog but as you rose up the ranks at United Way you have spent time all over the world you yeah. were in New Orleans. I was following after Katrina. Katrina. Yeah. What was that experience like for you, and how did that shape you? Because there, you witnessed failure of government. A failure of government and failure of community. I was. It was as if we had taken the lid off of an entire community and found a third world city. Wow. And um, and the world got to look in and say, "Wow." I didn't realize people live like that in America, and uh, city government is what, and uh, what's happening with police, and what about the federal response? The world got to look inside um, a major American city and the surrounding area, and saw abject poverty, mm -hmm. saw despair, saw dysfunction, and then increasingly, and, and you guys and others covered it, saw hope 
and resilience and kind of this, this what I do think is not uniquely American, but is part of our culture, which is yeah. to reach out and help, whether the cameras are on or not. Yeah. And if you go back to New Orleans now, it's a, it's a very different place. It is. It changed our United Way there that was, you know, kind of struggling to figure out its future after 130 years. Well, they're all about social change and including people and, and, um, and uh, race relations. And uh, mm -hmm. it's, it, changed, it changed them. But I, I think it gave the world a look into a part of America that we didn't want to see. That we didn't want to see. Yeah. You've seen a lot. Uh, and a lot that is very difficult to see and stomach. Yeah. What has broken your heart? You know, I, it makes my eyes water as I just uh. try to think of that quite. I was, I was named into this job uh, five weeks after 9-11. And, um, and uh, I remember walking, walking along, um, I guess it was Pier 53 or something where there was, there was, you walk through um, a mile of handmade posters that were missing person yeah. posters. I remember And I well. kept coming back, and you no doubt were here and, dip, and seeing it, and then they slowly turned from missing person, I'm looking for my brother, I'm looking for my son, my sister, to memorials. Same people and memorials. And um, I, you know, 9-11 means different things to different people. I, I can't get that out of my head. I can't. Um, and then what's interesting is then, you know, then the politics and the backbiting starts. It's like, are you guys kidding me about this? You know, we get Red Cross and United Way getting criticized for. You guys went through a real, I mean, a yeah. really rough time then. Yeah. I remember going to Charles Grassley, who was head of yeah. Senate Finance, when we were getting beat up for yeah. essentially raising money to help people. <laughs> Didn't do anything wrong, but it was good fodder for certain folks They were in the worried media. it wasn't going to the right places. Yeah, or not going fast enough, yep. which was, you know, there are times where you need to look at that, but this was, come on, really? So you and, went to Grassley, who, oh, who was then head of the Senate Finance Committee, which was overseeing how all nonprofits work. Yeah, and, and by the way, we had... Just in the U.S., we had at that time 1,400 local United Ways, and we were too loosely affiliated, and we didn't have enough control over things. And, and so I thought to myself, all right, this is the opportunity to rewrite it. And um, eight months into the job, and, uh, and uh, so we're getting beat up by Fox and other folks. <laughs> and I said, uh, all right, we're going to call a special meeting of all United Ways in the U.S. We're going to rewrite all of our membership mm. requirements. We're going we're gonna, to um, strengthen accountability, financial management, ethics. You're going to report it all to us. We're going uh, to have third-party eyes look at it. I went over to his office. I put it in front of him, and I said, if we do this, because he sent me a love letter when I, and said, um, so tell me what you do to monitor your local United Ways across love the letter, country. Huh? It was a love letter <laughs> yeah. from the, and uh, so I went, I said, can I come see you? And he said, I said, would you endorse it publicly if we did this? And? And he said, yes, and he did. He did. And we had a meeting in Phoenix, and I called a vote. We called a vote when nobody could vote against it, and we changed everything. It was all about reputation. It was all about reputation. If you don't have that, what do you have? In, in my world, trust is your currency. Sure. And it, if people don't trust you, um, you don't, you don't it, it doesn't matter. And so we had to deal with that. 
This also came in the wake of some pretty big scandals. You had the former Washington, D.C. head of United Way pleading guilty to stealing nearly half a million bucks. You've yep. got the former New York City head of United Way taking over 200000 for personal use. Yep. Then you come in. The spotlight is truly on you. Yep. How did you use that to turn this place around? Um, and 9-11 was happening. Yep. And this uh, Katrina happened shortly thereafter. Um, I, so during the search process, the debate was, can somebody from United Way come in and change United Way? And I'd been United Way my whole life. I was an intern. And, but I was, I was young enough where I didn't care if I got fired. Mm. And um, I was young enough that I, f I felt then I feel a responsibility today to, I'm going to turn this over to somebody. And, um, and people were telling me, even before the Washington, D.C. thing broke, you know, uh, yeah, United Ways mess up, uh, but it, you know, every four months, every five months, but 99% of all United Ways are great. <laughs> I said, well, we all share the same name. And um, so I can, remember the, I can remember the day. It's, it's, um, we needed to take control of the brand. And so when the Washington, D.C. thing was happening and, and we had set up an interview with the Washington Post to here's a profile of a new CEO, and, mm -hmm. and I thought, God, what a, what a bore. And, and so the reporter comes over and I said, I'd like to change the story. And he said, what? I said, the, the CEO and the entire board need to go at that United Way. We didn't have the control to do that. That was the front page story of the Washington Post. Wow. And um, it then they created a committee that looked at reforming. Uh, Rodney Slater, former Secretary of Transportation, ran it. Got rid of them. Mm -hmm. um, we did the Grassley thing. That was eight months. At, so that's the scandal in Washington was six months. Then Grassley was eight months. Mm -hmm. And we rewrote all of the requirements. And um, we said to the board, somebody's, and this is what I'm thinking, that you, we have to change the culture of this place. Yeah. That we can't be, this stuff can't be happening constantly. We have to control it. And I said, some United Way is going to challenge us on this. And when they do, we're going to take their head off. And I said, it can't be Sioux City, Iowa. It's got to be a big market. And um, it was Chicagoland, my hometown. Yeah. And uh, they were, it wasn't, they, they weren't stealing money, or, but they were, they had 50 United Ways in Chicagoland. And it you was, ended up consolidating them all into one. We did. And I went to a meeting in Hinsdale. I can remember it to this day, 150 volunteers and staff. And, and they were supposed to show me their consolidation plan. And I'm still, remember, I'm still like eight months in this job. <laughs> And uh, essentially it turned into a presentation of what an idiot I was. And um, so, but um, the day before, the national board had voted to pull every one of their licenses. That's wow. our power. Wow. We licensed them to be our franchise. Yeah. Yeah. And so when they were done, I got up on stage and I said, you either approve this merger or we will pull every license of every United Way in this room and we'll start all over. And oh. I left. And what'd, you do? what'd they do? They voted to merge. Yeah, there you go. And so that's the answer. That it's not... Wow, what a great thing I did. It was, you had to change the culture. Mm -hmm. Today, if there's any challenge in a local United Way, we get a call from a volunteer. Mm. We just don't, it's knock on wood, it just doesn't happen yeah. anymore because we made it clear this is not, this Acceptable. is zero tolerance. Is it true you wanted to run for president as a kid? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I did, I did, um, I did it's embarrassing to say I did. Uh, Why? Even before, even after I was 12 years old. So what about now? No. Why, you just don't like the smell of politics these days? Yeah, I don't. That's exactly right. 
That's exactly is, right. It's, I don't think it's where it's happening right now. Is that keeping, you know, I hear that from a number of CEOs as well who say, I think I can be more effective in the, in the corner office at my company through policy than I can in Washington because I cannot get, I wouldn't be able to get a thing done. And I, that's, I think that's right. I, let me, I've been in Washington now almost 14 years. What I've learned is how to stop stuff. That's what you learn in Washington, how to stop things. I, I'm, we're good at it. Um, Washington doesn't know how to do things. And so um, here's what I think is happening. That, and it's not just Washington's fault, and it's not just politicians' fault. The world is changing. And people are less and less looking to institutions to drive change, whether it's businesses or churches or nonprofits or government. And now they have the tools to self-organize. And I, I said this in, at panels in, in Davos and other places with the forum. Usually, I did it once with a minister of technology from the Indian government. And I, and I was saying, let me make my point about how this is changing in government in that representative democracy just isn't as functional as it used to be. Mm -hmm. That it used to be that the idea was we would elect you, you would go to the next level to represent all of us, and then and then when we decide you're not doing it, we just go around you. We don't need you. Just go around you. And I think in increasingly that's what's going on. I think what's going to go on is it's going to come bottom up again. That, so the CEO might be able to do more from his or her corner office. I think communities need to, mm. if you look at where social change is happening, it's not happening centrally. It's happening locally. Well, and I then think you saw that in this election. For, for sure. For President Trump. For sure. I mean, you heard people who said, we have not been heard in far too long. That's right. But you saw health care done at a yeah. local and state level. I think we're going to see job training and skills gap dealt with locally. And then the feds will decide what it is they... But no, I don't have any interest in that. All right, but you do have to go to Washington for your job. I do. And you do have to talk to these folks, even I, if you I, don't like it. No, no, no. I enjoy, I enjoy, the, yeah? I enjoy the policy part. Yeah. I just don't want to be in the job. So you recently met with the Trump administration to talk about the, the grave issue of human trafficking. Yeah. And what can you share about the efforts that you guys are working on with the new administration? So it was, you know, it's a bit, um, it was encouraging to me. So Good. it's apparently Ivanka Trump who's gotten very interested in the issue. There's 21 million people across the world that in, are victims of modern-day slavery and in forced labor, forced uh, sex trade. Uh, it's happening in every state in the U.S. Um, it's $150 billion organized crime industry um, and if we care about fighting for the you know the health and education financial stability of everybody how can you not deal with this yeah I didn't I, I didn't have it on my radar and the Obama administration I was part of the the White House Council on faith-based initiative and I learned about it and and so to the president's credit he created a listening session we went over with about a dozen of us we hired the person from the White House in the Obama administration to launch a center at United Way worldwide to combat modern-day slavery. Mm. And um, what we can do is we can bring businesses together and mainstream nonprofits. Mm -hmm. Trafficking right now is very akin, in my view, to the AIDS response 30 years ago. It's unbelievable advocates and um, folks working to do what they can do, but it's not organized, it's not, it's not normalized. Yeah. And so, I think people think, oh, that's sad, but it's not in my community, correct. it's not my family, when you that's might right. not even know. The data is not very good. Yeah. It's a lot like domestic violence when I first sure. started. And so, so what we can do is we can normalize it. 
we can talk about it. So, so we went over and, and the president listened and um, so you met asked, with the president. He was there for forty minutes, and he was. And then, you know, I'll you know, it's uh, when the he gathered us in the Oval Office afterwards, and we've got that now famous shot of the horseshoe around the yeah. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, uh, it would be good if he would convene the big nonprofits as well, not just on trafficking. So, yeah. boys and girls. That? Yeah, so everybody left and I stayed. And uh, Had a one-on-one? Had a one-on-one. What was that like? As, as much as you feel comfortable disclosing, obviously some was private, but... He, he, um, he likes to talk. Um, he likes, he's, he's engaging. He, uh, he asked me about, he asked me who I knew in New York. Uh, asked me about the United Way in New York. Told me about being a donor to United Way in New York. I said, I know. And uh, I said, you know what we ought to do? We ought to get, uh, we ought to get the big nonprofits together just like you did here. And and uh, talk about the private sector and the nonprofit sector. He said, that's a great idea. I said, I'll talk to Dina about it. Dina Powell, mm-hmm. who came from Goldman Sachs right, running, running the their, foundation. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, he's a, it's, um, I tried to, it's very interesting. I, I had a, I was on a, a, a keynote, part of a keynote panel at the independent sector, which is our biggest association in nonprofits, uh, right after the election. and. A lot of our sector leans left, <laughs> and uh, I'm an unaffiliated political moderate. All right. And United Way, left to its own, we're nonpartisan, and we focus on, but but left to our own devices, we start to lean left. And what I said to this group that was very distraught <laughs> at over a, at, his election, mm-hmm, yeah, is focus on policy, not personality. Okay. You know, um, if the administration works on something that matters, focus on it. Um, hold the administration accountable. I, I still see today, um, we, we're personalizing it in, I'll just say in our world, and, and focus on policy, the administration, Congress, Republicans. Not the words, not the tweets. Not the, wor- not the words, not the tweets, unless they affect policy. The words have consequences. For sure. For sure, and some don't. Is there anything that you gleaned from that private meeting you had with him? Because most Americans haven't had that. Most journalists haven't had that. He hasn't done, as you know, many interviews. Yeah. Um, is there anything that the media is getting wrong on him or public perception of I him is enough, wrong? I didn't get him time with him in that regard. It's, he's, uh, he's, like every, he's like every president that I've met. Uh, he's a person. And um, we we create caricatures pretty quickly <laughs> and uh, I can't you can't help but not um, every every person I know is needy and uh, and you know you've interviewed a lot of CEOs and and it is and this this is not melodramatic it is lonely in these jobs and as weird as it sounds uh, my guess is he's feeling you know like who do I trust what do I and mm. And, uh, and there needs to be a personal engagement with him if you're going to get a real exchange. What Wait, is, but that's true with every person, and even more so a person sitting in that chair. What is the number one thing you want to see his administration do? What's your number one ask? Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. It's tax reform and policy that embraces building the middle again. Um, Isn't that what he ran on? 
Yeah, but the policy, not personality. Okay, so you're, it sounds to me like you're saying he said that when he was campaigning. The policy proposals you're seeing aren't doing that, aren't not building yet. up. Not yet. You, you, can't, you can't cut dramatically the safety net programs that the, the administration is proposing to cut and then say that you're building mm -hmm. the middle class. Um, will, the, will, will the White House hear from you if, if, uh, if you don't see some changes on that oh, front? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's we, the, one thing about, um, the one thing about being the largest private funder of nonprofits in the country and getting 95% of all of our money from the private sector, from conservatives and progressives, is I, I, I relish the fact that we don't take public money. Relish it. Um, because you're not beholden to them. Nope. You can make them mad. Well, have made made uh, made uh, uh, forty three mad after Katrina. Made President Obama mad uh, on tax reform hmm. as he tried every every year in President Obama's budget was a cap on the charitable deduction for the highest wage earners. We were the most vocal. Um, uh, opponents to it. Mm -hmm. I personally told senior people in the administration, you're going to hear from us on this. It's not yeah. right. Um, I said to... <laughs> you're not doing your job if you don't make presidents uncomfortable. Well, hold any anybody. People hold me to account all the yeah, time. Yeah. And I, so what, why... Uh, I, I, I'll tell you, the first time I met a president was meeting uh, George W. Bush, and I was shaking. <laughs> I was shaking. And, uh, but then the second time I was better. And then, you know, our next door neighbor uh, for his time here in D.C. was Dan Bartlett, who was the special advisor of the president. So, I, yeah. you know, it, they're all just people. And uh, so in a small meeting, I, you know, I, he took it as criticism. I was just saying, how come you always mention the Red Cross but not United Way <laughs> in responding to disaster? Because we're here for like the next five years. Sure. Oh, he was mad. Mad. And, but then... When the press came in and he said, and they asked, and he was making a statement, he said, so in addition to that, give to Red Cross or United Way. There you go. So you got to push people. Does America give enough? Do Americans give Here, enough? Here's the challenge in American philanthropy and giving. Um, fewer people today are giving more money. And so there are fewer the, the donors. The uber rich are giving. The uber rich are making, which is fantastic. Yeah. But it's like, it's what happened during industrialization. There was this concentration of wealth. So Rockefeller and Mellon and, yeah. you know, all the robber barons whose now names are on the biggest philanthropies in America. Uh, they were giving all the money. And then the question was, how do, you, how do you distribute that? And so the Carnegie Libraries was a public good. Yeah. And so the key now is, what are the super wealthy going to do with their giving? But how are we going to incent... Um, Middle, middle income. And so one of the proposals we've made to the administration and to Republicans is make the charitable tax deduction for everybody. Make it universal. So no matter what happens with the standard deduction or tax rates, put it above the line. And if you're making $50,000 a year, you get a tax deduction for what, whatever you give to charity. Right. And promote... And right now it's not like that. No, you have to, you have to uh, itemize your taxes yeah. in order to get that. So Americans are, I'm concerned right now, to be honest with you, yeah. that too much of the giving in America is being concentrated in too few hands. Why is that dangerous in your opinion? Because it, con it concentrates decision making and so it go, you influence. Know, we've seen 
I believe what I was reading, a lot of this money increasingly from the wealthy is going to big institutions, going to universities, for example, which is great. You want to fund them, but you're saying it's not going to other needed places? It, 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 it is, but it, it's, so do we give enough? So that's one question. Do we have enough giving from enough people is another question. So we've, in the U.S., we've given 2% of GDP to charity for 100 years, mm -hmm. and we're still doing that. It's just coming from fewer people. Mm -hmm. And the danger is that if you're not, it's like voting. If you're not politically active, if you don't vote, if you don't give, if you don't volunteer, mm -hmm. that when I say we're breaking down the cultural middle, that's what I'm talking about. You, uh, you are quite the optimist. You are an idealist. I suppose you I have am. to be in this job. Given, you know, what you grew up with, given the rough childhood you had, where does that come from? My mom. Hmm. And she was, she, I, I could, she was, she blew me away constantly that she would live this life. I know she had a different view of America <laughs> before she got here, but she was the, she was the sweetest, most optimistic kindest person, most resourceful person. The fact that, you know, she would she would apply for, you know, welfare and food stamps, not tell my dad, and she'd use it to, you know, don't tell the government, buy Christmas presents and so forth. And uh, it, she was just the most optimistic person that, that I knew. That, but the other thing is, so you can be optimistic and be, be, in, be idealistic, but the, the other thing that, I, that you learn when you grow up the way I grew up is you have really wide peripheral vision. People don't get around me. So I can be, I know when you're behind me. Hmm. I know when you're in front of me. And uh, so I'm idealistic, I'm optimistic. I wanna work with positive people. But I know when you're in my, hmm. in my side mirror, in my rear view mirror. And if, if there's a threat, not just to me, but to the things that I care about and what I think are right for communities, uh, I'll take that on. Are America's best days ahead of us? Um, America, so. That's a long have, pause. Yeah, because um, we're, in, we're in a tough spot right now. We're in, um, we've lost social and economic mobility in the country. The American dream as defined by um, me uh, and people like me that my that I would do better than my mother and father economically and otherwise and and most of my brothers and sisters have as well that's not that's not a guarantee anymore and so our the days in front of us are going to be different and we have to decide what we believe success is if if we don't get out of this and listen I have flown an American flag in front of our house since the day after 9-11 and I've recently started flying, um, you know, uh, an equality flag in front of my house. Um, I'm a patriot. I care about inclusiveness. Um, but if we don't get clear about what we think success looks like, and this idea that we are a special people, uh, we're the we gotta we gotta get over that mm. and realize that what made us special was that. Um, everybody that 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 we're inclusive could participate could in participate. our success and I don't you know and it's I get it you know low growth slow growth 
jobs being eliminated through globalization and technology and so forth, and that creates fear and reality in terms of, and I grew up in steel country, and you know, guys I went to high school with went right into the steel mills and made way more money than I made for the first two-thirds of my career, but those jobs aren't there anymore, so I get it. But if you think that's coming back, and that's what you think are the, are, are, are best days ahead of us, no. If you think that we can be competitive and resilient and so forth, yeah, and our best days will be ahead of us if we will embrace who we are, which is inclusive and optimistic. And don't allow, don't allow the narrative from such extremes to define us. Who's your hero? I, uh, I don't, you know, I don't, when people ask me, you know, tell me about your mentor or so forth, I don't have a mentor. I have mentors. I have, do you have, um, a, hero? Do you have a hero? Is it your mom? Um, I don't, you know, maybe this is, maybe this is the, the dark side of how I grew up. I don't, I don't, I don't idolize. Huh. I don't idolize. I, um, I watch and I learn and um, I don't, I don't, it's, it's a, it's a, it's probably a flaw I have. I, I'm defensive in terms of believing too much too fast and believing in heroes. Um, uh, it's uh, my mom for sure, uh, a mother who raised me outside my family, um, a guy named Pete Smar who was my basketball and baseball coach who I was always at his house growing up who gave me safe places. Um, Janetta Cole, who I met when she was the president of Spelman College, and mm -hmm. she, you know, she is, as she would say, she's my shero. Mm -hmm. um, but she's my mentor. Everything, gender, um, inclusiveness. She's now a mentor to my daughter. Mm -hmm. um, so I, it's, um, but I, I don't hero worship. Final question: What do you want your kids? You have a daughter. Two. Two, Two daughters. Girls. They're pretty great, right? They're great. I got one, 11 months old. It's, man, what a bride. Rock my world. It's, it's going to, in different ways in many the, times. In the best way. <laughs> so what do you want them to say about you when, when they look at your career, when they look at what you've done? What do they want to say, my dad is X? Um, I, first thing I want them to say is that he loves me unconditionally, and uh, he supports me and he doesn't judge me. Um, and then I want him to be proud of me. And even though they, they, they're constantly aggravated by trying to explain United Way to people. Um, <laughs> if you like make stuff or you're a fireman or whatever, that's like, um, but when you have to explain social issues and bringing people together and social contracts and tax policy, it's like, um, but that's what I hope. They're, 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 yeah. they're great, great young women. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, Poppy. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Boss Files. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. 
a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.